Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod. Before we get into this new instalment of the show, I have to pause and say a few words of thanks. Many of you have reached out in the past six weeks with messages of support and good wishes. And whilst I may not have responded to a number of them, I want you to know that they have meant a huge amount. The continued sharing of the love, whether it's been messages, reviews or downloads, has been a humbling reminder of what this podcast has always been about. Building a Napoleonicist community around the world. On my side, after a considerable amount of rest and a lot of reflection and self-improvement, I'm now in a much better place. Probably the best place that I've been in with my mental health for years. Priorities sorted, research going well, writing happening, and focusing on what really matters. This doesn't mean a return to business as it was pre-Christmas. My focus is now on longevity rather than milestone chasing. And that's going to mean me producing essentially what I want to and when, rather than pressuring myself to feed the insatiable beast that is content creation. I want to take the time to explore different styles, options and formats, which I'll say more about when I'm ready. Once again, though, I want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for your support. As we bear down on the fourth anniversary of this show's first broadcast, the engagement is stronger than ever with literally hundreds of you tuning in daily and thousands of you subscribing in every continent. You are this show's success and its reason for being. Thank you for continuing to join me on the journey. Now, on with the show. The word Waterloo is littered across the landscape, not just of the United Kingdom, but the entire world. Towns, cities, streets, bridges, schools, you name it, And there's probably an example of it with Waterloo daubed on the side. Why? How did we get to that point? What was it that made people in far-flung corners of the world give a monkey's about a battlefield in a distant corner of Europe? The simple answer? The British Empire. In this episode, Dr Luke Reynolds, friend of the show and critically acclaimed author of Who Owned Waterloo, celebrates the release of the paperback version of that book in the US, by giving us a sneak preview of what might just go on to become his third title. 
We don't hold back in this one, taking a blunt approach to the fact that studying Empire is complex and at times deeply unpleasant, whilst also poking fun at the way that Waterloo Day basically became a shorthand for having a monumental boozing session. Luke is in characteristically good form for this one, and if you haven't already got your hands on a copy of Who Owned Waterloo, I'd urge you to rectify that by heading to the Oxford University Press website, where you can save 30% by quoting code AAFLYG6. Once again, that's 30% off at Oxford University Press's website by quoting the following code Alpha Alpha Foxtrot Lima Yankee Golf 6. This is Waterloo Around the World, up next on the Napoleonic Wars pod. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod. I am joined by the mighty, yes, mighty is indeed the word, Dr. Luke Reynolds. So you know full well that with Dr. Memory, as I tend to call him in the house, we are going back down that dizzying road full of surprises, slightly bonkers things, um, tat, because I'm going to be honest, some of it is just plain tat. Uh, But we're doing this slightly differently. Um, We're going to look at how Waterloo was remembered, commemorated, and in some cases rammed down people's throats across the British Empire. If you don't know Luke already, then you need to listen to the back catalogue and come out from underneath the rock from which you've been hiding. He is visiting assistant professor at the University of Connecticut and is author of the critically acclaimed, yes, it is critically acclaimed, I've said it, and I will hear no arguments, the critically acclaimed Who Owned Waterloo. It won the SMH First Book Prize. It was runner-up for the Society of Army Historical Research First Book Prize. Frankly, if it doesn't get shortlisted for the Wellington Medal from Rusey, a crime has been committed. I'm not saying that to jinx it, I'm saying it because it's true, not the, the judging panel have the slightest they probably don't even know this podcast exists so it's not like this is going to influence them but it's true it's a brilliant book um the number of kind of testimonials that have come in about it is very telling about its quality luke good to see you again my friend how are you doing i'm well zach thank you for having me i'm i'm just in the process of deciding whether dr memory is my superhero name or my supervillain name um definitely super villain name um with, with the slicked back hair i think you you can kind of pull off the suave villain look uh, i think with that, that that suits you yeah um, i need one of those high-necked sort of Nehru Nehru pseudo pseudo uniform jackets yeah but i think you need to go for the van dyke beard to complete the sort of super villain look um we'll, we'll work on that we'll discuss your kind of sartorial outlook um after the show so let's let's talk empire um and waterloo during this period this could go in so many directions it actually makes my brain hurt uh so i'm going to be really basic and just start with the beginning because i'm unimaginative like that and just talk about the sort of the breaking news element of waterloo there are some there is a actually a really good book out um that talks about that race to try and get the news back to the uk it's really quite remarkable and dastardly and entertaining um but that's to get the news back to the uk once it's broken 
in the UK, then of course, obviously it becomes old news to everybody in the home islands. But there's still the need to get the word out everywhere else. And that's not to say that everybody's going, oh, the war's over on the 19th of June. Of course, they're not. But nonetheless, news needs to go out that there's been a great victory. It's a propaganda element to all of this. And the Brits are pretty adept at propaganda when they want to be. Um, so how does this work in terms of getting the word out, first of all? And what's the reaction like? Because I it, I feel that it's very easy to put together this narrative that there could be some seriously unimpressed native populations that just sort of shrug about this. Great. So these white people who have come in, invaded, killed our families uh, in the course of that invasion and are now telling us how we live our lives, have gone and beaten some other white people in a country a long way away. Um, how does this affect us? So, so talk us through the reception of that news as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's like you're dead on, right? And especially in places like India, you are genuinely talking about a native population that is that is hearing the news of a battle between two of their oppressors, right? There's been wars being fought in India, whether it's going to be British or French hegemony. And so, yeah, it's pretty easy to imagine, you know, sort of people in, say, Seringapatam or uh, the Maratha state sort of going, where? Who? What? Okay. Um there is not, at least that I have found, that level of, you know, race to tell uh, the news. And, you know, that the the books that you've mentioned on that point do also make it clear that, you know, one of the big things about that was, you know, getting getting a business advantage, right? It changes the economic world uh, fundamentally, or at least, you know, allows them to then short stocks of, of ammunition and things like that. Um, it's, it's less uh, breakneck and less cutthroat. Um, I think a lot of the world genuinely finds out about it in pretty much the standard way when the local colonial newspapers reprint whole extracts of the British newspapers. Uh, and for those of you who don't know your um, your media history in this period, this is a pretty standard thing. Uh, you just get uh, on both sides of any colon colonial divide, you get newspapers reprinting whole chunks of, of each other. Um, and usually they're pretty good about sort of, you know, saying this is an extract from, say, the Caledonian Mercury or, you know, the Ottawa Gazette or something like that. But it is just sort of lift and drop, right? We're not dealing with um, copyright or bylines. We're fundamentally dealing with an entire press corps that views itself as the associated press, that everything can just grab everything else. And in fairness, that's not actually unique to colony and, and metropole relations that's that's happening provincially as well you know within the home counties um you know, the london papers do their thing and then that sort of trickles down so it's very much just kind of part and parcel of how newspapers operate during this period absolutely and it goes both ways even in the home counties you know there's you know uh, open up a open up a london society paper and within five issues you'll find a story about someone doing something stupid in dublin right it you know and it's taken from a dublin newspaper uh, so it does go back and forth. So I really do think a lot of it is going out in the standard way. Um, the people who are going to be most interested in this, in all honesty, uh, especially in certain places, are going to be the military. Because whether France or Britain or, you know, whether the Allies or uh, Napoleon wins at Waterloo, isn't going to have a an immediate effect on someone living, of, of a civilian living in, say, West Africa or the Cape or anything like that. 
but it may have a pretty immediate effect on a garrison that's stationed there, or especially garrisons that have been sent there because of what's going on, right? You know, what you know, Wellington doesn't have the army he wants at Waterloo because the War of 1812 is still going on. So that's there's gonna be there's gonna be that aspect to it. Um, in terms of first sort of responses and first reactions, uh, the early stuff that we get is actually reporting on um, colonial contributions to the Waterloo Fund and colonial sort of raising their own funds. So the first mention I found uh, actually is, is bloody quick, but uh, but the civilians in uh, Halifax in, Ca in Canada raise 4,000 pounds by September of 1815 for the widows and orphans and those and the disadvantaged. Um, there's another report that comes, again, in a, in a British newspaper, but comes of um, a fund, uh, not actually contributions to the Waterloo Fund itself, but a separate fund being raised in India, uh, 40,000 silver rupees in Calcutta and 10,000 pagodas in Madras that are raised for, uh, you know, sort of for those who at Waterloo and for those who are left. Um, the, the Actually, you'll appreciate this, Zach. Both of those funds are sent privately and directly to the Duke of Wellington because it's assumed that he's the best person to then spread that money and that largesse around. Um, in, in, I, I will say this, you know, in, in, in credit to Wellington, there is no mention there of a scandal that he pockets it or anything. He probably just picks it up and drops it right into the war office and says, I'm too busy with deal with this. Um, especially since in July of 1816, he's in France commanding an army of occupation. Um, and then On that, actually, are there any sort of mini scandals that develop around the Waterloo Fund? You know, people just sort of quietly taking a bit because, you know, money disappears on journeys it, sometimes. It's less about sort of skimming off the top and more of the scandals that emerge are about, you know, who gets what, how much they get. Uh, all of the reform newspapers are having a field day with how much Wellington gets of the prize money versus how much an average private gets of the prize money and all of that. Um, if you want a, uh, the by far the best take on the fund that I've ever encountered, uh, there's a there was a PhD um, student by the name of Elisa Milks, M-I-L-K-E-S, uh, who wrote an entire PhD dissertation at Yale on, um, that's basically the social version of what I do on the cultural side. And she has a, a superb breakdown of the Waterloo Fund. So for anyone who's really interested in that, uh, that's where I would point you to. I would also obviously point you to uh, Evan Wilson's new horrible piece, which is gonna go into that a little bit. Um, so yeah, back to back to the fund and things like that. The next the next contribution I've actually found comes from Africa, comes from West Africa. Uh, two colonies, uh, Demerara and Berbice, which are then amalgamated as British Guiana. Um, and that's in 1818. Africa is also uh, really interestingly the first place I've found a imperial commemoration. There's an 1818 dinner by the Sierra Leone garrison. Um, that sort of is, you know, uh, uh, salutes many, several people that were there and several regiments that were there. And actually because they are invite some local civilians, they invite a Prussian clergyman. And so they have to drink a toast to Blucher 
uh, because they're honoring him and he gives the thanks as sort of the token Prussian. Um, Sierra Leone also sees the next year, 1819, the founding of a city of Waterloo. Uh, and I really like to think that the idea for that city came about at that dinner, a whole bunch of drunken officers sitting around going, how do we make this regular? How do we commemorate this? I know, we'll name a city after the battle. So on that, is there a kind of, because as we know, you know, the name Waterloo ends up, and Wellington ends up littering not only the UK landscape, but also the colonial landscape as it is back then, you know, Wellington uh, <laughs> clearly being the name of a very significant city but you know it, it makes the point doesn't it that the the name ends up being pinned on many things do we know if there's this sort of effort of one-upmanship you know well you know in in place x they've done this so therefore we need to do y not really you don't you don't really see that level of of rivalry but what you do see is a lot of places you know especially these new victorian cities right, that are building these streets and like, well, we got to name them something. And so it becomes really common for there to be a Wellington and a Waterloo. Um, you know, there's a Waterloo Hotel in Hong Kong. Um, there is obviously Wellington, New Zealand. There's, I think there's about 10 towns in the United States named Waterloo um, that emerged. Yeah, I did, I did a search through a, a bunch of uh, post office registries. Um, why? How, how, they, how, why? They like the name. They they like the name. There's maybe there's a couple of expats hanging out there. Um, oh, one of my favorite, actually, one of my favorite examples of this, and this this does feed in really nicely to this, is there there ends up being a Waterloo Tea Room in New York, um, and there is a British tourist who shows up there at one point and looks at it and records in his sort of travel log that he would lay basically he would lay money down that this is named Waterloo not to commemorate the battle, but to convince British tourists to come and spend money at this tea room. I think the actual line is, this name is here to lighten the pockets of John Bull. Does that work as a, as a business model? I wouldn't say, it wouldn't surprise me, honestly, given the amount of, of Brits that are in and out of New York, it is sort of the, it's the staging post, right? It's where they all arrive if they're going to travel uh, across the United States, and a lot of them do end up staying there. And yeah, you know, uh, there's that moment of sort of, well, we've got to support this, we've got to be there. And yeah, it, it genuinely wouldn't surprise me. Okay, so we've got some unimpressed native populations. We've got this news of a great big thumping victory over one one collection of of white nations over another white nation you know the, the people some people turning around and going big deal the army going hoorah or whatever the the um well i suppose it's huzzah is the 19th century equivalent isn't it um it is, yeah. so you know you've got a lot of sort of uh, perhaps that's where to go with this uh next question is, is there a lot of sort of the army ramming waterloo down people's throats and to what extent does that grate on people because i'm very conscious that and back then they were exceptionally conscious that this control that they have over the empire is not a given. You know, Britain is acutely conscious of the very messy divorce that it just went through with the USA. They are terrified 
about the prospect of losing control in India and, you know, the manner in which that makes people absolutely beholden to the sepoys of the East India Company is fascinating and that there are there are books written about this, but there are whole books that can still be written on that topic. So when the army sort of going around going, yeah, look, aren't we brilliant? How much of that is sort of, look, we're amazing. Um, you don't want to mess with us. How much of that is just, look, this is what armies do. You know, they've got a success to celebrate. Their, their comrades have gone and done a thing and they're going to celebrate it. And equally, how much does all of this sort of grate on people? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely an aspect of that. I, you know, within within the military itself, I I I get the feeling it is actually genuinely less about, um, you know, establishing control and and aren't we brilliant, especially at the beginning, and much more about um, our soldiers are stuck off, often in the middle of nowhere. They have nothing to look forward to. Let's throw a party on June eighteenth that allows them to be special and it's you know it's a it's a deviation from the usual day uh and all of that so i you know reading reading between the lines i do get the feeling it is especially for the army um at the beginning very much about uh marking this and it's for internal morale rather than external domination uh with the understanding that if internal morale morale goes to pot then external damnation will also go to pot um you know the the fund reports uh, that I that I mentioned right very much have a have a hint of uh, we've maintained control about them right you know yeah this the empire continues it is still glorious and actually the ones from Sierra the ones from Sierra Leone um, the, the the garrison dinner um, all the reports that I found of that actually presage presage it not with this is Waterloo but look we have an English language newspaper in the west of Africa. That's amazing. The Empire is doing so well. Um, and that's really what they're delighted about and sort of highlighting. And then they highlight Waterloo as part of it. I mean, regular listeners to your podcast don't need to be told that the British Empire is in, they're feeling the stretch right at this moment, right? Evan, Evan Wilson, in his Horrible Peace interview, did a, a superb breakdown of this. Um, and others have talked about this. Uh, Hugh Davies and Beatrice de Graff have both, both made the point that uh, that sort of you know English uh, British uh, interests in the Congress of Vienna and in the Peace of Paris, um, and their push to to not destroy France entirely, are about creating a balance of power so they can concentrate on their blue water empire because they know that they can't rule the world if they're trying to police Europe. Um, it's kind of a one or the other thing. Uh, so there's definitely that feeling of sort of we need to push through this. Um, are there people who are resentful of this? Are there people who don't care about this? A hundred percent. There are there are also going to be people that are sitting there. I mean, this is the the classic, and you get this in the UK too. Of sort of why are we spending money on this? Why are we care? Why do we care? Why are we throwing these parties? Um, there are a few examples of uh, of um, uh, you know using the other side of it. Uh, so um, uh, the Australasian League, which is founded to object to the idea of transportation, right? It's basically saying, "Hey, Aust Australia is a legitimate colony now. Please stop sending us your worst and start sending us your best." Uh, they actually deliberately stage a protest on Waterloo Day. 
uh, to sort of push back against this. There's a hilarious article in the in the Sydney Monitor about you know basically having to defend the government buildings uh, from this crowd. But it is very clear that they legitimate they do, do deliberately choose this day, right? And that is part of this. Um, but yeah, I think I think for the military, it is it is about breaking up monotony and it is about um, boosting morale, at least in the start. There are other aspects that will, of course, come through uh, as we move on. But um, but yeah, I think to start with, like, for example, that 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 dinner in 1818 in Sierra Leone uh, could very easily just have been we need an excuse to crack open a new case of Madeira um, and the June 18th is coming up and you get it, you get, you get views of basically like, you know, let's, let's find what excuses we can. Uh, there's a Waterloo celebration in um, Hobart, the capital of Tasmania that goes so well that the newspaper turns around the next day and is like, great, we're doing this for Trafalgar in a couple of months. Where there's a market opportunity for people to get drunk, you will find people who will exploit said opportunity. Um, that's brilliant. I love it. Now we're going to sort of go on a, a bit of a an imperial tour. Can is that even a dangerous phrase to use? I'm not sure, but we've gone with it now. So um, we'll we'll stick with imperial tour. And apologies for any offence caused. Um, from the chat that we had prior to this, yes, folks, we we do actually like plan these episodes. That don't I don't just rock up and you know fire the first thing that comes into my head at, at people because uh, the show would be even worse than it already is if I did. Um, but from that discussion that we had, I gather there's quite a lot that's distinctive, I think it's fair to say, in terms of what happens out in Australia when it comes to remembering Waterloo. Talk us through what happens. Yeah, so Australia becomes uh, one of the, the centre points of this. And part of it is that they are, you know, half a world away from Britain. Uh, they are feeling that pinch. And I think part of it is also that they do develop into into you know, it, it becomes, and again, another very deeply, pro deeply problematic phrase along with uh, Imperial Tour, we're going to throw in another one here with White Dominion, uh, which is, you know, one of the one of the classics. But they are desperate to try and demonstrate that they are... All right, another problematic one, right? That in their minds, they're more advanced than other colonies, right? That they, that they are more European, that they're more white, that they're more Anglo-centric. Um, and that drives us, and part of this, keep in mind, right, part of this is, is research bias, right? I know a lot about Australia because Australia is trying to do this, and therefore they have a lot of English language newspapers that preserve this stuff. So I've got a better source base coming out of this. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, why, uh, why I sort of, I've signaled out Australia, Australia has a couple of, of really interesting developments, though. Uh, so it really gets going in the 20s and 30s, right? And press coverage starts to accelerate from the late 20s on. It's that, it's that phenomenon of what actually comes first. Is it the commemoration? And then they start writing about it. And more people are like, oh, this is a great idea. Or there's a lot of commemoration. And the press finally catches on. Uh, it's the whole chicken and the egg thing. Civilian commemoration, just to tie into exactly what we've been saying, is centered around taverns. Uh, the two sort of capitals of this in Sydney are the Canning Tavern and then the Cricketer's Arms, both of which are run by uh, veterans. Um, although the Australian newspapers can never seem to decide what regiment they fought in, they fought for. It's it's one of those messy, very messy situations. But the Cricketer's Arms becomes so 
recognized to this that newspapers actually genuinely start referring to it as the Antipodean Apsley House around the Waterloo anniversary. When it comes to not being able to work out which regiment these guys served in, are they, is it perhaps the case that, you know, they, they're that particular type of person, and we all know somebody like this, who's been in the army um, and won't stop going on about the fact that they've been in the army. And in the process, they spend so many yarns that, you you know, one minute they're in the 71st and the next minute they're in the 95th and the next they've pretty much served in as a cavalryman, an artilleryman and an engineer as well. Yeah. Is that perhaps what goes on there? I, I think it very well might be. Uh, I have found in the same year, uh, Sydney art, papers and uh, articles in Sydney's papers that that attribute the service of the, the landlord of the Cricketer's Arms, a man by the name of Green, to both the lifeguards and the Coldstream Guards. Um, you'll note, by the way, that both of those are incredibly illustrious regiments. Uh, so... Yeah, you know, take what you want from that. I but, mean, he's uh, not pretending to be in the Connacht Rangers, is he? Let's be honest. Oh, I don't know. The Devil's Own has their own particular um, elan about them. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off mid-flow in that, and that was that was unkind of me, but uh, I've got zero regrets. Yeah, no, no worries. So yeah, this, I mean, we see uh, taverns become the centre, right? Um, and it starts as dinners, and they are largely civilian, but we do see some permeation, right? So, for example, in the 1841 uh, Cricketer's Arms Dinner, the, the guests are entertained by the full band of the 28th Regiment of Foot, the North Gloucestershire, uh, who are sort of on loan from the barracks. Um, as these get more popular, they actually go from dinners to balls, because balls automatically fit more people than a sit-down dinner d- does. Um and they they do sort of you end up with you know sort of several hundred at these events, which is not bad for the population of Sydney in the 1840s. Uh, the military commemoration uh, tends to first of all be much more uh, public than it is in Britain, right? In Britain, it starts public, right? We have these we have you know parades and things like that, but it then becomes much more private. Um, in the Empire, it stays public, but it is still centered very much around barracks and garrisons. Right. So by 34, uh, the residents of Sydney's Sydney have come to expect at least a partial illumination of the barracks. Um, yeah, the Sydney Monitor actually complains when they when it's left dark, um, you know, basically sort of why are the walls dark when it when we were trying to commemorate this extraordinary victory? So apologies. I, I know I keep chipping in and this is really kind of unkind of me, but I know you can handle it. So, you know, um, I, I'm less apologetic than perhaps I should be. Um is that like a, is it viewed in kind of, this is dishonorable? Um, you know, here we are sort of as as honorable um, citizens or, of Britain trying to celebrate our illustrious, uh, you know, kind of collective history. Um, and and the army's not doing its bit. And this is disgraceful. Is that how it, is that the sort of the terminology that's used? Obviously, I'm guessing here. Yeah, I'm it is, curious actually. about the phrasing and, and how it's expressed. No, it, it absolutely is. Um, let me find this for you. Um, yeah, here we go. This is domestic intelligence from the, the Sydney Monitor. Yesterday was the 12th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, a day great in the annals of Europe and, prou- and a proud one in English history. Custom and a natural feeling of conscious superiority among those who remember the merits of the eventful 18th June have in most garrisons celebrated the day with rejoicing and a dinner among officers and privates. 
We do not hear, however, that such honor has been paid by the garrison of Sydney. And that's, by the way, that is not, that's not 34. For those of you who do the math, it's 27, just so you don't have comments going sort of, you know, what, who is this hack who doesn't even know uh, what year is, is uh, 12 years after 1815. Look, you're a historian, not a mathematician. We can let you off the hook. Don't worry. I always, I, you know, I actually always open uh, my, my first day of teaching, make sure everyone's in the same class. I, you know, tell them, you know, here's what we're doing. And then I stop and say, no one expects me to teach them calculus. Good. All right. We can go on. It's a long time since anybody mentioned calculus to me. Very long time. We we digress. Um, and long may it continue. I, <laughs> yeah, too right. Um, I can't even remember what calculus was all about. Apologies, Mr. Oates. Not that Mr. Oates is listening. Um, but yes, I was taught by a guy who'd been to Oxford and had that sort of air of an Oxford don. It, it was really quite baffling. Anyway, did he, did he wear his gown? No, he didn't. Um, the headmaster wore the gown. Um, but usually only for assemblies. Uh, and we we were all quite baffled by this, even more baffled, incidentally, when um, there was a change of headmaster and the new guy had uh, a PhD in chemistry. And he basically walked on in colours that looked like the West Ham kit. Not that I knew what the West Ham kit looked like, but everybody was cracking jokes about it. So that was my induction into what the West Ham kit looked like. Um, but yeah, we're, we're a long way from Australia and Waterloo. Let's get back on topic. <laughs> So, uh, you know, yeah, military commemoration is centered around barracks and garrisons. They have illuminations. There are often fireworks because where there is a large store of gunpowder, people will make fireworks out of them. Let's be real here. Um, there's often uh, dinners, usually in Sydney, at least. Uh, you want to talk about the the, the sort of um, the, the, the English caste system in one in one sentence. There were barracks dinners for officers and pub crawls around Sydney for the enlisted men. Complete, complete with reports of like delight that no one got drunk and started a fight. Right. You know, we're so proud of our men who behaved well. Uh, there is that patronet, that patronizing tone there as well. Are you sure they were really partying that hard if they didn't get pissed? I mean, these, I'm are, sure. these are red coats. I know. I'm sure they got pissed, but I think it was, you know, they didn't break anything. And that's the line. Um, Normally, it's what the officers I... that start breaking things. If the oh. peninsula was anything to go by, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no reports from you know, there you know whether they can keep they can keep shtum about what happens inside the barracks, right? So that's the key. Uh, one of my favorites from this is the uh, is the Australian, which is another Sydney paper in 1837, which praises the in the ingeniousness of the garrison, reporting that, and I quote: "Those regiments which were present at the sanguinary con contest." sported green wreaths of various kinds on the occasion, laurel not being obtainable. Quick, find something green, anything will yeah. do. Yeah, and I do I do genuinely get the, uh, you know, obviously this is, this is inaccurate, but I do genuinely get this sort of picture of an arts and crafts day in the barracks with all of them were there with their green construction paper cutting out laurel wreaths. Has anyone got some green cloth? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, the other the other big tradition that starts is uh, the 18th of June becomes a day when the army in Australia announces promotions. Sort of an honors list, a military honors list, to the point where you start to get a shorthand that in the paper they're just referred to as Waterloo Day promotions. How does the authorization for that work? Sorry, that's a I, deeply technical question. But I think I, mean... I think it basically comes in and they hold it until so they gather a whole bunch of them and then drop them at once i'm with you 
I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, it, it's an interesting concept because horse guards perhaps wouldn't be overly keen on that as a, a way of doing things. You know, you promote somebody at a particular time. Um, it also that, pays merry hell with the seniority listings if they're all announced at the same time. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm going with it. That yeah. actually you've got all of these people who have commissions at different dates. And yet if you elevate them all on the same date, sure, the army does that. Uh, if you go through the list, then yeah, you know there is quite clearly certain days where people get kicked up a, a level. Yet, if you're going to hold everybody, um, in terms of the announcement, that that's a problem, um, because horse guards list or, or when that were, when that happened it is therefore different to what's happening out in the colonies. So then you've got all kinds of issues of local rank versus true rank and all sorts of things. So my my instinct is that um, those those the promotions are they go into effect at the date that Horse Guards puts them into effect, uh, but they are announced to the Australian public. They they send out a big newspaper bulletin, for example, because the average Australian cannot afford to ship in a copy of the Gazette. Right, that's just ridiculous. So I think I have a feeling that's what's going on. But you do get these sort of, you know, water who's made a sergeant on Waterloo Day, who was, you know, elevated to captain on Waterloo Day. That's really interesting. Um, I want to talk about agendas here, and we have sort of dabbled in this, but I want to, to probe a bit deeper. Um, and I'm sort of going to do a, a almost like a sort of Linda Colley style of questions. So for folks, I know I have mentioned this in previous episodes, but in case people haven't picked it up, Linda Colley is one of the people who wrote um, a book in, uh, I believe it was 1993, called Britons. And it was basically about the forging of, of British national identity in very heavily emphasised inverted commas. Um, and one of the things that has often been drawn upon is the way in which conflict and the experience of war is drawn upon as a way of trying to bring nations together and forge a, an idea of what it means to be, in our case, British, um, in other nations' cases, you know, French or whatever it might be. Um, and I, I'm interested about the extent to which, when you look at the efforts of commemoration here, again, I suppose we're, we're talking a sort of chicken and egg scenario in the sense that are we seeing a sort of an effort to reinforce the bonds of empire by look we've all got this shared history you're all part of this collective we uh, as britain can take on the the best that europe has to offer and win so you want to be on our side anyway and kind of stuff that down to people's throats and use that as a um more sort of nefarious way of saying look here are the benefits of empire but doing it in a sort of subtle sense um but equally if you're out in the colonies and you're trying to curry favor, you know, if you're the governor of a colony, mm -hmm. it looks good if you can turn around and say, look, things are going so well out here, thanks to my supervision, that actually these are the celebrations. You know, there's this great sort of, we can't call it patriotic feeling because that ties to nation, but there's this sort of great support for the imperial, in, inverted commas, mission. Um, what's what's at play there or is it actually both and, and more things besides yeah i mean it's both and more things besides there's uh there's absolutely the individual drive um they're the hundred percent there i mean you know you don't become a colonial governor without being ambitious in one sense or another right there are absolutely people who are 
colonial governors because they are ambitious and military and they get into that position. They're like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just going to happily let my clerks do everything while I sit back and again, drink Madeira and port. There's a theme today, guys. Uh, but, um, but yeah, no, there's absolutely that, right? There's this, there is this, an attempt to forge this shared sense of Britishness, both in a national and an imperial identity. Um, and the need for that reinforcement actually overrides other social, professional, or geographic divides that dominate commemoration and life in Britain itself. So we get that sort of traditional imperial compression. Uh, English, Scottish, Irish, and Welsh become British. There are even places, uh, Hong Kong is an amazing example of this, where the Europeans are so outnumbered that basically anyone who's white is welcomed into the fold. Right. There are there are parties that are sort of, you know, for for great British events where the French, the Americans, the Germans, the Russians are all invited because they are Europeans, whites, that sort of thing. Um, and the lines also between civilian and military socially blur and become more permeable. Um, so one of my I have two fave two two examples of this that I really like to talk about in the Australian context. One is very short, one's a little bit longer, but I'm gonna sort of throw them both at you. Let's do the short one first. And it's one of one of my favorite examples of just, I'm sorry, what? Um, so in 1840, the residents of the Norfolk Island penal colony, which is 800 miles from Australia, but under Australian governance, uh, were granted a half holiday and a dinner of fresh pork in exchange for, and I quote, Three hearty cheers for Old England, the Duke of Wellington, and the British Army from every man. Who came up with that idea? That's... I presume it's the governor of the prison, sort of the commandant, if you will. Uh, but it is this amazing sort of moment of, yo, no, 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 we, you, are, you are the worst. You are quite literally, to borrow that, that phrase that Wellington has been quoted millions of times, the scum of the earth in the view of English society. Uh, but you are going to, we are going to reinforce in you that you are British. And we're going to do this by bribing you for with pork um, in exchange for three cheers for Wellington, who would more, who was, del, you know, more than supported transportation completely. Oh, yeah. Signed on off on it many yeah, times yeah. on exactly. his own soldiers. On his own oh, soldiers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the British Army, who in some of these cases, at least, were probably responsible for them being in irons. Not only that, but actually some of them would have been ex-British soldiers kicked out exactly. of the army, transported as a felon overseas for crimes. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, uh, Old England, a place where they were likely never to see again. Literally the place they'd been kicked out of and told never to darken their door again. Exactly. Somebody's quite tone deaf, aren't they, <laughs> when they come up with what? this idea? What, someone in the British Empire tone deaf? No. I, I know, it's a baffling concept. <laughs> But yeah, no, so that is, that's one of my favorite sort of moment examples of just like, what? Um, yeah. But the other one that's a little bit more sort of, it gets us, get, lets us get a little bit deeper, right, uh, is um, Tasmania. So let's, let's dig into Tasmania. And it's a, it's a, it's a good jump, actually, because Tasmania starts as a penal colony, right? The, the British presence in Tasmania starts as a penal colony in the first decade of the 19th century. But basically what starts to happen is the guards who are stationed there, who come back, the people who drop people off there and come back, or the, the very lucky few who managed to serve out their sentences and make it back. 
bring stories of the richness of the land. Like this, it's that place is teeming. And so more and more free settlers start to show up there. And expanding settlement basically soon brings the subjects of the British Empire, both those who are forced to be there and those who want to be there, into conflict with Tasmania's indigenous population. It's the old story, folks. We've all heard this one before. And this results in a near decade-long conflict that's known as either the Black War or the Tasmanian War. Um, and the war is largely dominated by guerrilla tactics until the, the Europeans, the British, have had enough. And in 1830, uh, basically, there's this massive combined military and civilian offensive. It's christened the Black Line that drives the entire Aboriginal population onto the Tasman Peninsula and then eventually onto neighboring islands, basically committing genocide in the process, right? Something like 20% of the entire population gets off, the rest die in the process. It's brutal. It's it's of that line. And it is one of those conflicts that that is like, you know, we need to write more about this. We need to read more about this. We need more of this on the record. Um, but between the pressures of the penal colony, and the racial paranoia driven by the sort of black Tasmanian war, the development of a firm British and imperial identity that would override pre-existing social, economic, political, and national identities becomes crucial, right? You do not want your, no, no, your nearest white neighbor saying, I'm not gonna help you because you're Welsh and I'm Scottish, right? You don't want that. You want everyone to be British and Military commemoration becomes a really powerful tool in achieving this. So there's the examples we've talked about already, right? Um, in 1832, the mountain that overlooks Hobart, which is has up until this point been called Table Mountain, is rechristened Wellington Mountain for obvious reasons. Uh, Cottage Green in Hobart itself becomes Salamanca Place. Um, and the headquarters of Hobart's garrison becomes the Anglesey Barracks. Right, so there's all of this that's already there and built in, but also uh, there is massive commemoration efforts around anniversaries, especially Waterloo and to a lesser extent Trafalgar. Trafalgar is particularly uh, highlighted at one point because um, the governor of Tasmania, the lieutenant governor of Tasmania, was a midshipman on board uh, a ship that fought at Trafalgar. He was at Trafalgar. So that obviously brings in special specialization there. Uh, but what we start to see is, is this, you know, very much this commemoration. Uh, there's dinners in the Hobart garrison's mess. The barracks are illuminated. Um, it gets to the point where there are multi-day events, right? Uh, there's an officer's mess one night and the sergeant major's ball the next. And all of these are mixed, right? It is the regiment, and uh, and their ladies, and um, also, and I quote, a number of highly respectable civilians who had been invited upon the occasion. So it's that blend in a way that by the time we're talking about, right, this is the 30s and the 40s, you're, you're starting to see a separation of commemoration in Britain itself into civilian and military circles. But here in Australia, and especially in Tasmania, because they're trying to, they're trying to basically trying to say, no, no, we are that strong British Empire. You are safe with us. Don't worry. Uh, it is all united. And it even starts emphasizing the joint nature of these things. So in one year, for example, there's a dinner at the garrison, and then everyone who's invited to the dinner gets up, strolls through town, and attends a ball at government house. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Is part of what's at play here, very specifically within the Tasmania example, about trying to sort of not quite militarize society because that's a much bigger and sort of deeper process that you would need to engage in but something perhaps akin to it i can't quite put my finger on what the right word might be but you talk about how you know this is kind of a a joint campaign that involves civilians as much as it does Mm -hmm. um military individuals is part of this sort of you bring people into the fold a little bit you expose them to army culture you make them feel a part of sort of the military celebrations so they can feel part of a military perhaps project is the wrong word i'm i'm dabbling in an area that i don't understand well at all and i'm concerned that i'm sort of tripping over my tongue in the process but i I think you can kind of get what i'm thrusting at i do no i do and you know keep in mind right we've got we've got two sides of this to start with right this is uh fundamentally frontier settlement which means it is automatically more military, more integrated, more violent than, say, Bath was at the time. <laughs> just, to, just to pick another one that has these commemorations, right? Um, and then there's the other side of it, you know, which is that, that the, the black line that ends the Tasman War is a joint military-civilian operation, right? It is, you you get that sort of vibe. This is, this is very much sort of the... Um, the Australian version of what we see and what we sort of picture and sort of say the Transvaal, right? And that sort of the military and civilian farmer populations working together. Uh, so yeah, that is absolutely a part of this. Uh, you know, bring people in, get them working together. Also, you know, they've met, they've mingled, and therefore they're going to be pissed off if they're not sharing this, right? It's about old old comrades dining together and partying together. Um, yeah, so that's absolutely part of it. Uh, and 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 then, of course, for those who are new, for those who might be scared, for those maybe sort of as we come out of the war, um, there's also the reinforcement of sort of, no, we've got your back. We are here for you. Look at military might. Um, there's an example. Uh, so uh, the second city of, of Tasmania is a place called um, Launceston. Launceston, Launceston. I'm, I'm not from, I don't know my Tasmanian pronunciation. So I apologize to any of your listeners from that area if I've butchered that. Uh, But for the Waterloo anniversary in 42, the population there is treated to a civilian Waterloo theatrical spectacle, a la what we've talked about in terms of Astley's Royal Amphitheatre or Vauxhall Gardens in London at a place called the Victoria Theatre. 
And it's one of those big traditional, you know, sort of uh, people pretending to be the military. But at the but halfway through this, they clear the stage, and the entire military garrison of Launceston passes over it in review, going through the manual and platoon exercise and executing several brilliant movements. Now, if, for example, say a troop of the household cavalry showed up at Astley's and went, hey, we're joining you, not only would it have caused howls, but there would have been inevitable letters of sort of, you know, why are we paying the wages of soldiers who are then lining the pockets of the owners of Astley's? But because it's the colonies, because it's compressed, and because the more important thing is to remind the population that the British army is a force, that it is, you know, young men in scarlet coats and polished steel that are there standing between you and that mystical, um, you know, native terror, quote unquote. Uh, it's encouraged rather than horrified, horrifying, right? So they're, you know, very much that sort of back and forth and, you know, sort of we've got to think of, we've got to get this, everyone thinking as Britons. And that's not just Welsh, Irish, Scottish, English. It's also civilian, military, naval, everything. So we, we've got very dark with, with this because uh, discussions are, of the British Empire tends to head in that direction, right? This is, um, yeah, you know, this is going to be, this This is the, the you're, you, you guys are getting a little bit of a preview of what will end up being my second monograph at this point, which is on all of this. Um, and, you know, I, I joke that the first, that my first book is, I, I get to write about parties. Uh, the second book, I get to write about parties and genocide, which mm. is, um, yeah, that's going to be a tricky tonal line to sort of toe, uh, but hopefully we we, we get it right. Yeah, the dichotomy is significant there, right? Yeah. Um, and, and it's a dichotomy that I'm trying to navigate now because having done uh, an important, let's emphasize that, an important aspect that needs discussing, um, we're now going to move on to tat. Uh, and there isn't a, an elegant way to to bridge that divide. Um, but we are, I know you love a bit of Waterloo memorabilia, whether it's a Wellington knocker or a medal or a coin or whatever it might be you, you like a, a i'm not saying you like a bit of tat but you do like a, a piece of um, waterloo memorabilia um and and some of it is is just appalling you know it's it's like harry and Meghan plates that were created when um the sussexes got married sort of thing um and and it's it's big business when it comes oh, to Waterloo, yes, you know, it, that just oh, goes to oh, show yes, that such is. a phenomenon as the those plates and the, the flags and, and all the rest of it is nothing new. So do we get much of that going on out in Australia? Is there an equivalent market out there? Yeah. So what we don't get, at least to the same level, is production. Right. A lot of it is coming from the metropole, from the homeland. Um but yeah, no, we do get that, right? There are, um, uh, you know, uh, in Australia and actually in India as well, the Times of India um, has a bunch of classified uh, ads for paintings, which include Prince of Waterloo for books and histories. Australia does the same thing, uh, right? And and just to, 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 to sort of beat on, to jump on what you were saying, 
um, you know, all, all of your listeners, think about how many times you've been wandering through or flipping through, say, the collection of an antique print stall at an antiques fair, the number of battle prints that you're going to find that are probably for, from 50 years after said battle, uh, but that are there. Uh, whether it's, you know, the, the cut up courier knives ones from the civil U.S. Civil War or uh, stuff from the Peninsular Wars and all of that. So, yeah, there is there is 100 percent tat. Um, what you see a lot of is uh, Waterloo anniversaries being used as an excuse to order it. Uh, but stuff that's going to be used full time. So, for example, the Cricketer's Arms, right, that that tavern in Sydney orders a new service of plate for the 1838 anniversary. But the feeling is, and the way it's written, it makes very clear that that plate is going to be their party plate for every event for the next 10 years, right? It's debuted at Waterloo, but it is not specifically, we're not talking about Apsley House where there's a set that's brought out just for the banquet. Um, he also, Green is the, the tavern owner there. He also buys and displays a, a bust of Wellington um, that sort of, uh, very possibly was shipped to Australia and then he bought it at auction. Um, he bedecks the front of his establishment with the colonial ensign, uh, a large illumination of the words Wellington and Waterloo, and then that, say, that life-size bust of the Duke of Wellington uh, crowned with laurels. This is one of my favorite bits of this, actually, because it in one year it is in, in, in the window crowd, crowned with laurels, but then he re realizes that he can start having fun with this. So in 38, he leads the procession um, from the dinner into another apartment set apart for dessert, solemnly carrying the bust, which that year wore not only the Caesarean wreath, but the Masonic honors in blue, red, and black, and Mr. Green's Waterloo medal as a pendant from the sash. Um, another year, he's dressed in full Masonic costume, and in 42, he sports, and I quote, a new-fashioned cocked hat. Uh, so Wellington is is setting the setting the style trends not just at home with the Wellington boot, but in the 1840s in Australia with a new cocked hat. I dread to think what he'd have said if he knew about that. Yeah, I mean, I think he would have been he would have been probably both amused and horrified um, when 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 Green carries the bust into the dessert room, by the way, he, they are greeted with um, "See the Conquering Hero Comes," being played by Mrs. Green on the pianoforte. See that bit, I think he'd have quite liked, you know. But I mean, um... he was—he certainly had no objection to being hailed with that. He was—he uh, was greeted that way at the um, at least at the Vauxhall commemoration in eighteen fifty, uh, or. Uh, yeah, and I think it was 1850, at which point uh, the, the, they strike that up and everyone knows what it means. And so the concert completely loses its audience because they all flock to the entrance to see Wellington's entrance. An 1850s bundle to go and see Wellington. Exactly. You know, who cares about the, the live music? Um, okay, so we don't get sort of the, the classic let's create some tatten and flog it in the traditional style. Panoramas do show up though, right? They do. They do. Um, they show up a little later, right? So first of all, one of the things that's worth noting about this is, is that um, in, in the ways of, of, you know, sort of uh, imperial commemoration and imperial progression in general, uh, it starts later and goes on later. 
So we're, some of the prime examples that I've been talking about, I'm seeing through the, the 50s and into the 60s at a time when in the UK, we've mo they've mostly abandoned Waterloo. Um, you know, they've moved on to the Crimea. The, 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 the panoramas are about, uh, you know, the battle, uh, uh, um, Navarino and Arma and Sevastopol, things like that. And then, of course, they get on into uh, the, 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 you know, African campaigns and things like that, right? You know, Omdurman and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but we do see panoramas start to show up. Uh, uh, Philippe uh, uh, is, is there's a guy, an entrepreneur by the name of Philippe Pateau, and his Waterloo panorama tours Melbourne and Adelaide in the 1890s um, and is hugely successful there. Uh, he tries, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a scandal story here, which I think you'll get a kick out of. Um, the 1893 uh, panorama in Melbourne is touted slash uh, promoted slash emphasized by a veteran of the battle. You know, sort of the, the, one of the last older surviving veterans of the battle. Who, because of the publicity that goes into this, it is revealed was born in 18, wasn't, didn't join the army until 1820 and is a fraud. And because of this, he's kicked out of veteran housing and actually ends up in jail for vagrancy. Serves you right. Yeah. You know, just just don't, just don't. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of competition. Uh, oh, there is. Of, um, sort of prodding, particularly, over, you know, who's the last? Um, William Hewitt. Yes, there's a Napoleon from Revolutionary Wargraves charity mention coming in here, people. No, I'm not, sorry. Um, William Hewitt on his gravestone. The NRWGC recently redid the um, the interior lining of, of his grave so that it wasn't clogged with weeds anymore. And instead, it's got a nice kind of gravel layer restored to it, as it would have done back in the old days. Um, obviously, we did that in time for Waterloo. Um, his gravestone very, very proudly attests to the fact that he was the last surviving English officer. Uh, that doesn't make him the last Brit, because uh, that was an Irishman. And he's not the last survivor because that was actually a Prussian, uh, not a Frenchman, as is often um, stated. So you know, there's there's a lot of kind of competition for I was the last over this. Yeah, there's a there's also a Hanoverian that gets up there, I believe, uh, quite late. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, there is absolutely there's a there's a there's a seventy uh, fifth anniversary panorama in eighteen ninety. Um, that has its own sort of last surviving veteran, uh, a Cornishman um, by the name of James Davy. And uh, Ian, Ian Beckett did, did a little bit of digging in this in his new book on, on battle panoramas and came to the conclusion that uh, the ma that man was also a fraud because the only James Davy that got a Waterloo medal is in a very different regiment from the one that this gen gentleman ch claims to be a part of. Um Something that I, by the way, have also confirmed. I've gone through the the Waterloo, the the, the medalists uh, uh, on that. I didn't just want to steal uh, Beckett's thunder, Professor Beckett's thunder on that one, uh, but he he is the one who sort of pointed it out. Uh, so fair play to him. One thing that you might be amused to hear about, though, is that the uh, the Waterloo panorama that shows up in Melbourne and Adelaide isn't from the United Kingdom. It's a U.S. production. 
So the U.S. was really big into panoramas and they enjoyed their ones of battles. And so, you know, after going through the entirety of the U.S. Civil War. I was going to say, surely Civil War is the priority. That, and no, that, it absolutely that, is. It absolutely is. Yeah. But after going through that, they decided they wanted some other ones. And Waterloo had enough name generation that they, they did it and then toured with it. That's quite remarkable. Yeah. Okay, so we've done panoramas. Let's sort of start hopping around different bits of the empire and sort of looking at some of the things that happen elsewhere. And you've talked a bit already about the West Indies. Have we covered everything of significance that's... um, So we've talked about... Did we talk about the West Indies, actually? We haven't talked about the West Indies yet. Okay, I'm an idiot. We haven't talked about the West Indies. I'm just making things up in my head. Um, Let's start by talking about the West Indies, shall we? Fair enough. So, yeah, so the West Indies, uh, you're going to get, unsurprisingly, right, it's going to be the planter class that's going to celebrate this. You shock me. I know. I I know. It's it's breaking news at 11 here. Um, But uh, one of the things you do get, and it it is actually really interestingly, uh, sort of along the lines of the the anniversary party at the prison, at the, the penal colony, but in uh, the twenty on the twenty third anniversary in eighteen thirty eight, Barbados celebrates by remitting the remaining periods of apprentice of apprenticeship of several thousands of apprentices on various estates. For those of you who are unfamiliar with colonial language, apprenticeship in this case is not as in oh I'm going to learn to be a blacksmith. It's what are we going to do about slavery now that we've outlawed slavery. So this is freeing several thousand, or freeing in inverted quotation marks as well, several thousand um, black laborers known as apprentices. In theory, they were learning how to farm. Um, But that does happen. That also, by the way, that same thing happens in West Africa as well. That's that's sort of how they celebrate, is sort of remitting, uh, ending apprenticeships uh, of that type. Is there any indication of gratitude um for for this ever so benevolent gesture is this very much sort of yeah great you've given me what i should have been entitled to anyway i mean that is definitely read into it um you know uh the 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 problem is uh that is that's something i need to dig a little deeper into as of now right now my my sources for that are uk papers that aren't going to cover that, right? Unless they're, for example, the Chartist or something like that. Mm. Uh, they're not going to go there. So, um, but yeah, there, there has to have been just sort of, uh, dear God, what? what? Can, can yeah. we stop already? I mean, it. it I, I think this is a very, very long shot. And apologies, folks, this has now descended into sort of down the pub, having a chat over a beer um kind of conversations that a beer that neither of us drink (laughs) yeah i know i know but you know shush um don't let the details come into this conversation reynolds what are you on about um but uh, i think it's a long shot but you know if a slave song ended up mentioning i don't know anything to do with napoleon or or wellington i would be massively surprised Mm. you know i i think the nature of slave slave songs are brilliant uh, we should do a whole episode actually on slaves. Some of them are utterly hilarious. They're they're so subversive, and yeah. you know the ability to to really take the piss out of their their owners, their overseers is, is just magnificent. The way that they are actually a form of resistance in themselves. I would be staggered if they then started 
talking about Napoleon or Wellington. Um, I don't know if Toussaint Louverture would make would make that, but you know, I, I think you're going to be hard pushed to find much in the way of kind of slaves, um, kind of going, yeah, Wellington, Waterloo, fantastic. This really matters to us. I mean, they got bigger the bigger priorities in life, you know. Yeah, right. And and if you if you're talking about um, you know sort of Napoleonic War military maneuvers that they're going to be most familiar with. It's going to be the Haitian Revolution, where every single army of Europe that claims to be fighting for liberation and independence is trying to put down this rebellion one after another, after another, after another, and getting summarily knocked off the island. Meanwhile, while while doing everything up to and including inventing gas chambers in the hulls of ships. Um, so, yeah, this is not, you know, sort of... Uh, even the most even the most diehard um sort of 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 the sort of uh pro-napoleon republicans in in france sort of are not are not arguing that napoleon is fighting for liberty and equality in in the west indies uh or at least they hope they're not because if they are then we need to have a talk because actually they'll stand to lose a huge amount of money yes. which often is is part of the problem here um okay so that's the west indies picture what's happening in india you know a subcontinent that is literally feeling the consequences of wellesley aka wellington's martial prowess and who perhaps isn't remembered overly fondly by uh, some of the inhabitants yeah no i think that that is that's a fair assessment um so again we are seeing this very much of the elite not Yes, obviously the European elite, to a certain extent, especially as we move into the Victorian period and the High Raj, um, the co-opted elites as well, right? That's that, you know, get them to the parties the same way we get them honors and that's how we lure them in and that sort of thing. Um, but it is, it's very much the elite. Uh, you know, again, the military is is having a lot of fun. Uh, there's definitely examples of Waterloo being a day to seize upon if you are in a garrison in the middle of nowhere, say, you know, northern frontier, any excuse for a gathering is going to be a good one. Uh, but also in, in more in, in in larger settlements, right? I've, I've, I've come across mentions of a Waterloo ball in Pune and a masquerade at Simla, uh, which, by the way, uh, was attended by um, Harding, then the governor. And uh, the details of his, uh, they, they go into some speculation about costumes that are just just the level of, I mean, you know, it's the 19th century, right? But by our standards, reading this in the 21st, you're just like, oh, good God. You're, you're one step away from sort of saying Johnny Chinaman here, right? It's like, it's that level of, of sort of cringe. Again, um, you shock me. I know, right? Uh, so yeah, what, military banquets and celebrations... In the cities, it's going to be to uh, build up that that same sort of military civilian guys um, uh, allyship. Outside, it's going to be we need entertainment for God's sakes. Um, and then there are also a couple of civilian things. There's a there's a grand military symphony, uh, Waterloo in concert in 1840 in Bombay, that sort of thing. So, um, but it again, it's you know. Yeah, you're you're right. Uh, the average uh, 
Indian, the average resident of of Bombay, of of uh, you know Bengal, or, or any of those, are not throwing their part of party for Waterloo, right? And even and and I would I would gather that even any sepoys who are who are familiar with it and who mention it are are going to be enjoying it because it is a half day, like that's the sole reason, right? It's that kind of thing. Yeah, if you were a resident of Ahmed Nagar, for example, you're not going to remember the arrival of the British fondly no, under the command not. of Arthur Wellesley, you know, um, so that that doesn't entirely surprise me. You mentioned sepoys there. Do we have much information on how the East India Company kind of not negotiates Waterloo because it doesn't need to negotiate, but sort of acknowledges perhaps is a, is a better word in the sense that um, obviously it's important to the British Army. Um, the British Army is part of what's propping up the East India Company, just as the yeah. East India Company is prop East India Company Army is propping mm -hmm. up the company's control over the region and, and protecting its protecting inverted commas, its assets really going no, on. No, 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 no. In fairness, in fairness, they are they are protecting their assets. The inverted yes, but they're also expanding protecting them. the region. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, that that's the main agenda here. We have an yeah. army that's here to protect our mercantile interests i mean it would be a by, shame to waste it you know if if you need to protect those financial interests by going out and acquiring new financial interests that that's that's you know this is how empires work during this period right but how, how if, do... if, if 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 the people that are crossing the border to raid are on the other side of the border they're not going to be raiding and therefore it's peace yes um <laughs> Yes, so many, oh, so many sarcastic comments that we could make um, about this, aren't there? But what what's the EIC's sort of engagement like? I guess is what I'm asking when it comes to Waterloo. So, from what I've seen, and again, this is something I need to dig into, right? I do not have uh, the the source base for this yet. Um, it is of that elite. We're going to party with the with the military uh, to reinforce that bond. Um, I would, I would put a decent amount of money on at least half to three quarters of those fund contributions that I talked about at the beginning, being East India Company, uh, officials, clerks, everything, um, and associated merchants and things like that. Uh, so yeah, it is, it's very much, and I think it is of that, it's of that, like, you know, where we have to be British. Right. And I think I think there is genuinely, uh, you know, some delight towards the end of that of, OK, maybe we can actually stop fighting the French in India for a little while. This might mean a form of peace, um, you know, that that is going to, you know, we can we can worry, we can uh, fight, you know, more of the Indians instead. That's very much the, the EIC's kind of stance. Um, yeah. You know, who do we fight for the biggest financial interest? Um, okay, so moving on from India, we've talked in the past about War of 1812 memorabilia in Canada. Um, folks go back to, there's a, a, um, an episode on memory and the War of 1812, um, a round table, a collection of the Dons, as I called it, because we had Don Hickey. Um, actually, did we have Don Hickey? I believe we did, but we also had, um... Alexander Mikabridze, who is a don of the old school yes, variety, absolutely. if ever there was one. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, so you can hear more on on how Canada remembers the the War of eighteen twelve, as does um, the the United States of America. 
But when it comes to kind of remembering Waterloo, where does this slot in? Do you end up with a kind of a a friction between the War of 1812 mattering that much more to the Canadians and yet Waterloo mattering probably more to the army and so sort of creating a contested space? Or actually, is this just an opportunity to party even harder? I think I think it is the latter more than anything, right? You know, they I mean Waterloo is sort of folded into that war of 1812 memory. It's all part of the same thing. Um, so yeah, it is an excuse to to party even harder. Uh what you see there again is pretty much the the, the standard um that that we're setting in Australia, that we're setting to a certain extent in in England itself, right? Uh military maneuvers, some sort of military celebration. Um uh, it becomes common enough that by uh, 1940, uh, 1849, its absence is noted. Uh, we have paper reports basically going, "Where is this? Where is this? Where is this party?" Um, there's also civilians. Um, the Highland Society of Canada enshrined into their rules, their constitution, that they hold a Waterloo banquet every year. Like it is right there in black and white. Uh, which I adore is sort of, you know, this is this is the problems that is facing Canada today. We don't have enough Waterloo banquets. Does that uh, get repealed at any point? Does somebody turn around and say, look, can we just kind of get a grip here? <laughs> we don't not, need to have this party enshrined into law. We can, we can just make it so in other means. Uh, not that I've seen, uh, but again, that is, uh, you know, I, I've, I found the 1843 rules of the Highland Society. What I need to do is dig out like an 1890 rules and see if it's still in there, uh, which is something I will do uh, at some point because it would be a it would be a fun question. Um, we see the same military maneuvers. Actually, if you want something in bad taste that has nothing to do with race, this is a good example of it. Oh, um, in finally, 18... something yeah, right? distasteful, but not you know racially distasteful. Oh, God. In 1839, the Coldstream Guards, who are stationed in Quebec in the aftermath of the, the Canadian rebellions, reenact portions of Waterloo on the Plains of Abraham. Oh. Which, which for those of you who don't know your Seven Years' War history, is where the British defeated the French and took Quebec at the end of the Seven Years' War. Oh, so many messages being sent there and none of them subtle. Right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I love that one because it, it's it's reported as sort of like perfectly normal, like, oh, this is just normal. And then you're just like, you read further and you're like, okay, if you know your history, this is a lot. <laughs> That's staggering. I love that it's reported so nonchalantly as well, though. Yeah. Wow. The layers of, of you know, to hell with the French within that. That's 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 trolling. Yeah, 19th really century is. style, quite frankly. It really is. Okay, so prior to us coming, in inverted commas, on air with this one, you said, ask me if there's anywhere else of interest, which is quite clearly an indication, having done a few of these with you, that you've got some pearl up your sleeve that's going to make my gob hit the floor. So go on, far away. So uh, how about memory of Waterloo in the middle of the Atlantic, roughly 900 miles east of the southern tip of Greenland? Okay, go on. I'm interested. 
I thought you were going to say, you know, like celebration in St. Helena or something. Um, oh man, I wish. There is, there is actually an island off the coast of Antarctica named Waterloo. It's part of the Russian owned segment. Okay. But um, well, that's interesting. Yeah, um, I will. I will look into Saint Helena. I will uh, look into Saint well. Helena because if I could find that. Speaking of trolling, right? Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. Uh, yes, we're gonna we're gonna invite we're gonna invite Napoleon to this dinner, and he might be bored enough that he might actually take us up on it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. All right. So it's June of eighteen forty-five. And two Royal Naval ships that most of your audience may have heard the names of tangentially are sailing across the Atlantic. HMS Erebus and HMS Terror. They're embarking on an attempt to find the Northwest Passage. It's an expedition that will cost the lives of both ships, 129 of their men, um, and become one of the enduring mysteries of 19th century British maritime exploration to the point where there are horror novels written about it. And on June 18th, 1845, the officers of both ships are gathered around Sir John Franklin's table on board HMS Erebus to toast the Duke of Wellington and Waterloo. Because as, Captain, as Commander James Fitzjames notes in his journal, today is Waterloo Day. Now, here's the fun part. Franklin, who is hosting this, can call upon experience because Franklin was one of the lieutenant governors of Tasmania in Hobart when they were partying. So Ooh, the circle gets completed. It does. It does. Although as so, a yeah. complete aside, just kind of, sorry, this is very unacademic in, in terms of where my mind's gone with this, but you were just talking about kind of horror novels and um, Waterloo toasts. I can just imagine somebody with a hyperactive imagination spinning some kind of horror story series that involves, you know, like the ghost of Wellington and, you know, toast him on the 18th of June and suddenly he appears in a mirror or something and... It, <laughs> you know, this is genuinely a horrifying prospect in and of itself you don't need to turn it into a horror novel um but you you can imagine sort of i mean we've got wellington the vampire as a series so surely that's not too far-fetched as a concept no not at all just just look in your mirror and say wellington was a defensive general five times oh i'm not sure wellington will appear but a very angry marcus crib will chase after you that is with sharp true. sword that is um, certainly true <laughs> okay. Uh, I I I I I don't I. This is one of these things where belief makes it possible. So I don't want to give Marcus the ability to move through mirrors. That sounds genuinely terrifying. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants yeah. to look in the mirror and then suddenly find. And I say this with much love in my heart, but nobody wants to get up first thing in the morning, look in the mirror, and find Marcus Cribb staring back at them. Uh, <laughs> That is genuinely a terrifying prospect, and I'm sure even Marcus would agree with me on that one. Okay, so one last question to to wrap all of this up. We've looked very much at the the perspective out in the colonies, but what's the view on all of this back in the metropole, back in the UK? Because it's not much of a stretch to imagine some pretty patronising comments, because let's face it, Western Europeans are very good at patronising comments about pretty much everybody, um, whether it's an indigenous population or actually a colonial um, settler 
population. And it's easy to imagine somebody sort of looking on and going, oh, well, isn't this terribly quaint? You know, look at these people out in the colonies. They're sort of celebrating Waterloo Day, trying very hard to demonstrate their loyalty to good old Great Britain. You you can well imagine it. Um, do you see those kinds of comments coming from folks in London? Not that I've seen. What you see is, and I think this ties into to one of the earlier questions we had, you see a lot of self-congratulation. You see these reports as proof of the size and security of the empire. Um, I think this is one of these things where had they, for example, been, had there been reports of this, of them celebrating minor scuffles in their own stations, then it would have been, oh, look at them, aren't they cute? But because it's Waterloo, it's genuinely seen as no, no, we, you know, the sun never sets. This everything, the, everything our shadow touches is ours, right? It is, it's that sort of thing, um, and it is, it's, it's self congratulation. Um, we see, you know, we do see very much sort of reports of these celebrations to a certain extent uh, in in the home newspapers. What we also see, and I think this is is telling, um, is we see a large amount of reports in the empire about the London celebrations, Waterloo banquets, things like that, right? Uh, especially in India, uh, there is sort of, a you know, almost an annual sort of the Duke of Wellington held his annual banquet, um, sort of just to reinforce those, those ties and presumably also to generate ideas, right? You read about this happening in London, you're like, oh, that's a great idea, let's do it here, right? And suddenly the Hobart, uh, another Hobart dinner is born or that sort of thing. Luke, it's always fascinating to talk to you. Dr. Memory doing what he does best there, folks. Folks, if you haven't got your hands on a copy of Who Owned Waterloo, Oxford University Press is the place to go. But thank you very much for your time today. And I'll look forward to seeing you again very, very soon. Always a pleasure, Zach. Thank you for having me. And thank you to your listeners for their their indefatigable interest in this period. The estimable Dr. Luke Reynolds there. If you haven't already followed him on Twitter, he's at Lou Reynol, L-U-R-E-Y-N-O-L. He's one of the ones to watch, folks, among the rising generation of historians. A reminder, you can get your hands on the paperback of Who Owned Waterloo and enjoy 30% off if you head to Oxford University Press's website and quote code AAFLYG6. Once again, that is Alpha Alpha Foxtrot Lima Yankee Golf 6. Folks, you know the drill by now. If you're new here, remember to hit that subscribe button so that you can find your way back. And if you're loving the show, remember to leave a review. It makes a vast amount of difference in terms of helping this show to reach a wider audience. Much love to all of my Patreon supporters who hopefully are going to start enjoying some slightly different um, elements of the perk package. Shout outs to my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Cochran, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Auric Ducado, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, 
David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgy, Sam Moore, Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, Jason Moran, and Mark Chestnut. And the Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, JC Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Led Campbell, Graham Swidenbank, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walcombe, Steve Carter, Clemens Bemon, Charles McKay, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, and Tim Day. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.